Well, I, I just got to say, like, we're going to turn our attention to the scriptures in a moment, but we have already had so much church in this space that I thought about skipping this, but since we're doing the Ten Commandments, it feels slightly important. And so, uh, that was a joke, feel free to laugh. But um, we're going to get there in a moment. Uh, my name is Benji, I serve as one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, welcome. It's great to be together today. We are continuing our study of the journey of the people of Israel through the period known as the wilderness wanderings. If you have your Bible, as you can see on the screen, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 today. Exodus is the second book of your Bible, and it details the deliverance of the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and a portion of their very long journey toward what was known as the promised land. I want to say, if you missed either the last two weeks, be sure to track down those sermons on wherever you get your podcasts, because um, Mike did an excellent job in each of the last couple of weeks walking us through this growing understanding for Israel of who this God is that redeemed them, and therefore what it means to belong to him in terms of their their mission and their purpose in the world. Um, so last week, Mike brought us to the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And we were reminded that the God of Mount Sinai is a God who is holy and that that holiness is both beautiful and awesome. And so what we're about to read in Exodus 20, God continues his DTR with the people of Israel. You know what a DTR is, right? There's a lot of college students in here. I know you know. Um, It means define the relationship, right? It's that moment, that that conversation where you, a couple who maybe has just been talking or just hanging out, you take that vulnerable step of clarity, bravery, and saying, okay, so like, what is this thing we're doing? Are we actually like dating, right? That's very similar actually to what's happening in these chapters, It is. God is bringing clarity to the nature of the relationship with Israel. And part of that clarity comes through what we're about to read in Exodus 20. Now, this chapter is primarily composed of what is commonly known as the Ten Commandments. It's also sometimes referred to as the Decalogue, which means the Ten Words. But regardless of what you call them, this passage is familiar-ish. Most Western people have at least heard of them as a concept, right? even if not many can very easily name all ten. I heard of one case study of mature Christians, most of whom had followed Jesus for decades, many of whom had advanced theological and biblical training. But this group of mature Christians was asked to get in groups of two to three and work together to name the Ten Commandments. And when asked to do that task, most could only come up with around seven on average, And none of the groups got them in the correct order. And when I say I heard of that case study, I was a part of it because Ken gave that challenge to our church staff. (laughs) And that's how we fared. He shamed us a little bit with his supreme knowledge of the Decalogue. And that's fine because this morning we're all going to enter into the source material. We are going to remind ourselves of exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the Ten Commandments. So hopefully you are in Exodus chapter 20. If so, and if you are able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. 
you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord, your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. Keep those Bibles open as you do. So for our limited time together this morning, I hope to help us get a little better understanding of what's going on here by asking four simple questions of this text, questions that we were taught in elementary school language arts. And the first is what? What is going on here? Now, when you and I want to make some kind of an agreement, we have any number of methods available to us, from the informal to the very formal. So we might make an agreement just by exchanging text messages or email. We may just use a handshake. That may be sufficient. Sometimes there may be a lengthy contract involved where we have initials all over the place. And then, of course, there's always the completely unbreakable pinky promise as a way to make an agreement. Well, in the ancient Near East, the covenant was the common form of agreement between parties, especially if one of those parties had more power than the other. What a covenant did was it detailed both blessings and responsibilities for each party involved in the covenant, as well as curses for breaking the covenant. So the Ten Commandments, when we get to Exodus 20, they contain a portion of Israel's responsibilities in the covenant that God is making with his people. And it doesn't take much advanced training to recognize that the Ten Commandments, they separate into two larger groups of laws. The first four deal with how the covenant people are to relate to their God, and the final six deal with how they are to relate to one another. So that's a little bit of what's going on here, but I also want to ask, but what does it mean? What does this mean? We're not going to do a deep dive on each of the Ten Commandments, both because of time and because some of them are pretty straightforward. Like, do not steal means do not steal. That's pretty straightforward. There are, however, a few that can use a little more explanation. So would you look at verse 3? 
In verse 3, God commands his people, you shall have no other gods before me. This opening law situates Israel as a nation of exclusive allegiance. Now, most of the religions of the ancient Near East would have been polytheistic, that is, believing in multiple gods. Usually, those gods were localized. They were geographically specific, and sometimes they specialized as the deity over a particular aspect of daily life. So you had gods for harvest, or gods for warfare, or gods for particular weather patterns. The God of Israel, however, makes clear that he alone is the God of the people, and he will tolerate no rivals. So in the Africa Bible commentary, we read this, the words of this commandment can be equally well translated, no other gods against me, or besides me, or above me. The wide range of possibilities in the Hebrew covers all the options when it comes to other gods. The God who purchased their freedom, he introduces himself that way at the very beginning. I am the God. I am the God who saved you out of Egypt. He's the God that purchased their freedom and he calls for their exclusive allegiance as the first covenant stipulation. The second covenant stipulation, the prohibition against idols, it flows naturally from that first one. So I want us to spend a couple of minutes on the third commandment. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Depending on the Bible translation you have open in your hands, your Bible may say, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So the Hebrew term that's translated either as misuse or take in vain, it comes from a root. That means to desolate or to defile. So I grew up as a church kid thinking that this mostly related to saying, oh my God. So of course, church kids like me, chose, oh my gosh, instead. So much safer. (laughs) It fit nicely alongside other verbal compromises like shoot and dang it and hecka, because only NorCal non-believers said hella. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Now, to be really clear, I think it's a really wise practice to not regularly get into the habit of saying, oh my God, but mostly out of reverence for the holiness of God that we saw last week in Exodus 19. This is not a God to trivialize. The third commandment may include using such a phrase at minimum, but that's nowhere near the scope of what is in view here. Far more destructive is the practice of using the name of God in ways unfitting of his holiness his character, his purposes, and his kingdom. The kind of thing on display in the book of Jeremiah. So after really familiar and comforting promises about plans and a future for the people of God, in Jeremiah 29, we read this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Coliah, and Zedekiah, son of Messiah, who are prophesying lies to you in my name. I will deliver them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, And he will put them to death before your very eyes. Because of them, all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon will use this curse. May the Lord treat you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon burned in the fire. For they have done outrageous things in Israel. They have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. And in my name, they have uttered lies, which I did not authorize. I know it and am witness to it, declares the Lord. 
And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns about false prophets. And then he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now, I probably don't need to fund your imagination with examples of ways that even within the church, the name of God has been misused to baptize selfish human plans or to cover over sin, to add on to abuse or to prop up wickedness and call it righteousness. We have to be honest that over many centuries, the people of God have often misused the name of God to perpetuate abuse, to oppress women, to undergird racism, to attack the dignity of his image bearers, to justify war, and so much more. The God of holiness who appeared on Sinai in thunder, lightning, and smoke will not submit to having his name used as cover for wickedness. No, when we claim the name of the Lord, we submit our lives and sacrifice wickedness in light of his holiness. That is what it means to misuse the name of the Lord. And God says, I will not hold anyone guiltless who does such a thing. Which brings us to the fourth commandment, to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And God provides his own rationale and explanation on this one, which I find very helpful. Now, obviously, the Sabbath is an ancient practice, but I don't know if you've noticed, it's enjoying a bit of a resurgence among contemporary Christians. So just in the past five years, for example, a number of really good resources on the topic of Sabbath have been released from really thoughtful believers like John Mark Comer and Dan Allender and Ruth Haley Barton. They've added to an already existing library of even earlier thinkers on the topic. And I wonder why this is. But I suspect it might be that in our overly busy world, where our smartphones leave us feeling on all the time, I wonder if the ancient way of rest and dependence the ancient way of admitting our human limitations that is built into God's covenant, I wonder if it just resonates differently than it has in the past. Perhaps we are particularly primed in our day and age to experience Sabbath as a gift rather than a grind. Now, I know I mentioned we're not going to work through all of these. We're not. But it would be a huge miss if I didn't spend just a couple of minutes on the fact that when Jesus gets a hold of the Ten Commandments, He speaks to the heart of them in ways that actually expands their impact. So he regularly challenges the prevailing interpretations of the day by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So it's no longer enough to look in the mirror at the end of the day and say, well, another day without murder, crushing it. (laughs) Because what Jesus does is he says, you have heard it said, do not murder. But I say, do not even nurse anger in your heart. And Jesus points to the anger in our hearts, for example, as just as judgment-worthy as the murder that could result. We can't hear the seventh commandment and think, good on adultery over here, when Jesus expands the boundaries of sexual immorality to the heart level. He prohibits the lustful impulses that fuel not only extramarital affairs, but also indulging in porn or premarital sex or sexual experiences outside of the covenant of marriage. Friends, our human tendency is to reduce the law down to the bare minimum to pass. But God's law is designed to scour our hearts in pursuit of both God's glory and our good. 
Now, we could spend all day going through the what's of the Ten Commandments, but there are countless resources available to help you with that. So instead, I want to get to our next big question, and that is why. Why does God give these laws? Now, our family does a lot of baseball and softball. We watch baseball and softball. We play baseball and softball. Every spring, I drive around with a car full of baseball and softball gear. But recently, we stepped into a new aspect of the baseball and softball life when my oldest daughter, Gwen, went to umpire training. Now, she's getting an in-depth look at the rules that make the game work, the agreed-upon ways of doing things that actually allow players to flourish. Well, in contrast to umpire training is Calvin Ball. You may recall that in the world of Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin and his tiger Hobbes, they often played a game called Calvin Ball in which the rules were constantly changing, usually to the advantage of whoever happened to be holding the ball at that given moment, which inevitably led to arguments and fighting and some kind of a wrestling match. Well, you might also recall that the story of creation begins with a picture of human freedom and flourishing. Eden was a place for the man and the woman to bear God's image through the exercise of their gifts and their agency. And yet, when they used that freedom for rebellion, everything changed. Now, in a world that is scarred by sin, unrestrained freedom often leads to rejection of God and harm of neighbor. But the truly good life comes through restraint. Listen to how David describes it in Psalm 119. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. For David, freedom and law are bound up together. And we need to see this isn't just an Old Testament thing. James wrote this to early Christians, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Notice that for James, the law gives freedom. And I recognize that this sounds contrary to much of how we understand freedom. Most of us have drunk deeply from a well of thinking that tells us that true liberty is freedom from control, freedom to do as we please. And yet the Bible's picture of liberation is more along the lines of freedom from slavery to sin and freedom to live as God designed. Free to love him and love neighbor with all we have. As G.K. Chesterton said, and the more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established a rule and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. In our home group this week, we spent a little bit of time trying to imagine the way that these words would have landed with the people of Israel. Now, while there are certainly aspects of fear on display in this passage and the surrounding passages, could it be that a community that was founded on collective and constant love for God and love for neighbor would be so compelling as to be irresistible? I mean, it's not hard to imagine various Israelites hearing this charter for their newly liberated nation, giggling with anticipation. After slavery in Egypt, we've all just agreed to live in a community built on all this good stuff. This is amazing. So that's a bit of the why, which sets us up for our next big question, and it is, who is this God? 
Who is this God? Again, the home group study had a really great quote this week that I want to make sure we didn't miss. Peter Enns says, The Ten Commandments reflect the manner in which his people are to be holy. It is therefore safe to say that these laws are more than simply good rules to live by. They show us something of the nature of God. And for this, they deserve our close attention. We see in them not simply what we must do, but what God is like. So if this conversation is a part of Israel's DTR with God, one of the key features is greater clarity on the kind of God that they are coming into relationship with. Most of the religions of the ancient Near East featured petty, aloof, inscrutable deities whose moods and character the people had to decode. Not so the self-revealing God of Sinai. This is one of the most gracious and I think readily overlooked aspects of God's character. He has told us who he is. This is a God who cares enough about his people to tell them how to stay in right relationship with him. This is a God who cares enough about his people to tell them how to avoid pain. This is a God who cares enough about his people to protect them from one another's sin. This is a God who cares enough about his people to tell them how to flourish. Which brings us to the fourth of our language arts questions How do we respond to this law? So the relationship of Christians to the Old Testament law has spawned extensive volumes by people far more competent than I. But growing up, I remember a general suspicion of the law in the church that I grew up in, as though somehow if you gave it too much attention, it would poison the message of salvation by grace alone. I heard some similar sentiments in home group this week as we reflected together. But I also heard in Home Group this week plenty of examples of just outright legalism in which the whole of the law was equated with the whole of the Christian life in ways that seemed to run counter to the New Testament. Now, I think the problem with both of those approaches is that either one puts the emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) So if Peter Enns is right, and I think he is, that one of the primary purposes of the law is to reveal God's character more clearly— then any approach to the law that begins with either our obedience or our avoidance has already started in the wrong place. If instead we can begin to approach the law as the gracious revelation of God for our benefit in loving him and loving others, then we can avoid both legalistic insistence that salvation is found in perfect obedience and rejection of faithfulness as somehow beneath the gospel of grace. I believe many of us need a radical reorientation to the law of God because so many of our experiences of authority and law have been less than perfect. It can be easy to imagine the law as a mechanism for God to exercise some kind of totalitarian control. And yet in the law, we have an invitation, an invitation to the truly good life, a life of unhindered access to God, joyful relationships with our neighbors, I found myself wondering this week, what would happen in my life and maybe in our life together if we increasingly saw God's law as not only limitation, but actually invitation to live in alignment with the way God designed for us to flourish. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Bible story began with beauty and agency in Eden, but things quickly fell apart after the rebellion of the man and the woman. And on every page since, we see the obvious and clear evidence that what the people of Israel claimed back in chapter 19, verse 8, we will do everything the Lord has said, 
is simply not the true heartbeat of humanity. One of the most daunting aspects of the law is that with very little effort, most of us can quickly see in it ways that we have not measured up to complete love for God and for neighbor. Moses ends his section talking to the people by saying, God gave you these laws so that you would fear him and avoid sin. And when we read them, we know, yeah, I haven't done that. And where does that leave us? The law is a weighty thing. And if you are feeling the weight of the law, hear the good news. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. To which the law and the prophets testify, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Friends, this is remarkable good news. And it is even more shocking that it came from the pen, of the, the pen of the Apostle Paul, who once spent his life striving to perfectly fulfill the law in order to earn his own righteousness until an encounter with the love of God in the face of Christ introduced him to grace. And that encounter is still available to each one of us. The experience of God's grace that turns the law from terror-filled limitation to joyful invitation to love him more and others more fully in response to the gospel. The human tendency towards self-justification, towards striving for holiness that somehow we can take credit for, it is strong within each of us. But like the Apostle Paul, those who are in Christ have taken hold of God's gracious offer of righteousness apart from the law. A righteousness that only God gets the credit for. Again, writing to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul declares Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Belief in the sufficiency of Christ in place of our clear and obvious insufficiency, that's the price of entry for the family of God. I want to say that as we look at the law, there could be any number of responses welling up inside of us. And if you find yourself today grappling with the distance between God's standard of holiness and what you know to be true in your own heart and your own life, or if you find yourself grappling with a bent towards self-justification, a desire to earn your own standing before God, I want you to know that our prayer teams would love nothing more than to pray with you. That God's law would sink in, not as a way to earn your own salvation, but as a way to respond to the gracious offer of salvation given in Christ. The weight of the law can sit heavily. It can sit heavily on any heart. Whether you followed Jesus for decades or whether you're just exploring who Jesus is here today for the first time. But no matter where you are in your faith journey, our prayer teams would love to hear where you're at, to pray with you, to encourage you, and to introduce you afresh, maybe again, to the grace of God. Because week by week, those who are children of God by faith in Christ, we come to a meal that is based on grace. See, Jesus reminded us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And because Jesus perfectly loved God and perfectly loved others, we can experience his grace and come to this table as beloved children of God. Yes, we come in awareness of the ways that our lives haven't measured up, but we also come in anticipation 
anticipation of the refreshing reminder of God's grace for sinners, and with full confidence that his spirit within us is transforming us into the image of Christ, so that increasingly we will more fully love God and love others. It is a journey we will be on until the day we see him face to face, but it's a journey that he graciously invites us into. Children of God, those robed in the righteousness that Christ alone has to give, come to the table as we continue in our worship.